at the moment we are in a sermon series in Paul's letter to the Philippians that we are calling a joyful, sorry, a journey of a joyful life. Um, after the opening greeting, Paul's thanksgiving and prayer, he wanted the Philippians to know that despite his imprisonment, the gospel was still advancing. And then he urged them to live for Christ. However, like every church in every age, the Philippian church faced the danger of conflict and of disunity. So Paul encourages the believers to strive for spiritual unity, um, which is based on the example of Christ and his humility, which we looked at last week. And Christ is our example, and Paul now uses that, and he urges believers to live their lives as light in the world, which we will look at this morning. Today we're looking at verse 12 to verse 18, and Paul begins verse 12 with the word, therefore, and when we see the word therefore, we need to ask what it is there for, and it's really connecting everything from last week. That word is going to be important for us today because it references everything that precedes it in chapter 2. So two weeks back, we looked at chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, which says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And then verse 4, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Last week in verse 5 to 11, we saw that the supreme example of this humility is Jesus Christ himself, who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And God's approved um, sacrifice of Jesus and of Christ's humiliation, he was exalted by Jesus, uh, by God, and he bestowed upon him the name that is above every other name. So today in verse 12, really, as I said, the therefore is in light of Christ's example, in light of Christ's humiliation to the point of death. And Paul is saying, therefore, let the gospel have a profound effect on your life. Let the gospel have a profound effect on your conduct. So please stand with me this morning. We will read from verse 12 to verse 18 in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask for your blessings upon us this morning as we study your word we ask for the blessing of understanding we ask lord for the blessing of your spirit to open our ears and open our eyes this morning we ask for the blessing of joy as we receive your word 
and as we humble ourselves to it. We pray, Lord, please, that you would teach us and help us to understand um, some of these very important passages that um, can be misunderstood. And we ask, Lord, that we would receive the Spirit's admonition, His instruction, His conviction this morning, and that we would respond in a way, Lord, that would bring glory to your name. So we pray for your help, Lord. Please teach us, Lord, that we would live lives as light in this world for your glory. May the gospel have a profound effect on us today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please, please be seated. President uh, John F. Kennedy said in a speech on May the 17th, 1961, he said, The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. This was a warning against complacency. And I thought of this quote this week while I was watching a video from the ministry Answers in Genesis. And the video was hosted by a Christian panel discussing recent news around the world. One of the news articles said that in April this year, 2023, the United Nations put together a document with legal recommendations attempting to normalize pedophilia. This document basically says that children have the capacity and the legal right to make their own sexual decisions. This panel went on to discuss and expose the evil of this and the ramifications this wicked agenda is having on our modern-day sexualized society. And while I was enraged, while I was saddened, at the same time hearing this news, I was grateful for the ministries like Answers in Genesis that are willing to expose the darkness by shining the light of the gospel on modern-day thinking. Another evangelical gospel thinker was John Stott. In 2005, Time magazine ranked Stott among the 100 most influential people in the world. He is an evangelical, he was an evangelical pastor, but died in 2011. If you ever find any of his books, I would highly recommend them. But in one of his visits to the United States, he said the following in a sermon. He said, you know, what your own country is like. I'm a visitor. I wouldn't presume to speak about America, but I know what Great Britain is like. I know something about the growing dishonesty, the corruption, the immorality, the violence, the pornography, the diminishing respect for human life, and the increase in abortion. Whose fault is it? Let me put it like this. If the house is dark at night, there is no sense in blaming the house. That's what happens when the sun goes down. The question to ask is, where is the light? If meat goes bad, there is no sense in blaming the meat. This is what happens when the bacteria are allowed to breed unchecked. The question to ask is, where is the salt? If society becomes corrupt like a dark night or stinking fish, there's no sense in blaming society. That's what happens when fallen human society is left to itself and human evil is unrestrained and unchecked. The question to ask is, 
Where is the church? Well, the Philippian church existed in a fallen human society where evil was unrestrained and unchecked. And truth be told, things have not changed much since then and will not change much until the return of Jesus Christ. And today, New Life Church, we also exist in a fallen human society where human evil is unrestrained and unchecked. And the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for the church to hide their lamp under a bushel. And that is why it's so important that as Christians, as, as children of God, our testimony should bring glory to God. When people look at our lives as, as Christians, they should see Christ. They should praise and exalt our God whom they see shining through us. And Paul's general exhortation for how the gospel affects our conduct is in verses 12 to 13, our first point this morning. Working out your salvation. Look at verse 12 there. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So there are two parts to this general exhortation. First, there is our work, which we see in verse 12. And then secondly, God's work, which we see in verse 13. But let's start with verse 12, our work. The Philippian church was probably, as we know, Paul's favorite church. It was the first church that um, Paul had planted in Europe. And he had proclaimed the gospel to them, and they had responded very positively um, to the wonderful news, the good news of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. And the Philippian church was a generally healthy church when Paul wrote to them from his imprisonment in Rome. But there were traces of conflict, which we will see in ch chapter 4. When we get to chapter 4, two ladies by the name of Iodia and Syntyche, and they were um, fighting and there was some danger of discord and disunity amongst this church in Philippi. So Paul wrote in verse 12, he says, My beloved, as you have always obeyed. Now what he's talking about is when they came to Christ, when they started in their journey of faith, this is when they started in their obedience to the Lord. And Paul's beloved Philippians had always walked in obedience to the gospel. Their obedience was not to Paul, as he says, but to Christ to the word that was preached to them. But now that problems were starting to arise in the Philippian church, Paul urges them to continue in their obedience, even though he was absent from them. But, but what exactly were the Philippian believers to do? How were they to conduct their lives in obedience, in this gospel obedience that Paul is urging them to? Well, he writes them, look at the end of verse 12. He says, work out your own salvation. Work out your own salvation. Well, I think this is one of the most misunderstood quotes or verses in, in probably all of the scripture. Many people read this and they say, well, God saves us when we do our part. After all, doesn't Paul say, work out your own salvation? You have to do something for your salvation. Isn't that what 
the scripture is saying. No, it's not what the scriptures are saying. Don't read this verse out of its context. We know from scripture, God is the one who saves us while we are dead in our sins. Dead people don't walk. Dead people don't choose Christ. This is where context is so important. Look at the context there. Look at verse 13. It tells us that the gospel saves us because of what God has first done in us. But even there in verse 12, the words themselves should help us if we examine them carefully. Commentator James Montgomery Boyce, he clarifies for us when he says, this verse does not say work for your salvation or work toward your salvation or work at your salvation. It says work out your salvation. And no one can work his salvation out unless God has already worked in it. Unless God has already worked in it. I think another way to understand this part of the verse is to say that we are to live out our salvation. We are to live out our salvation. Remember the context here. Paul is appealing for, for unity that he started speaking about in verse 27. And it really runs through up to verse 18 in chapter 2. And another thing is that we need to consider is that all the words used here are plurals in the Greek. Paul is not telling individual Christ Christians to individually work out their personal salvation. Rather, he is appealing to the church here. He's appealing to the general church, the Philippian church. And what is he appealing on? What is, what is his basis on? We saw last week on the example of the humility seen in Christ Jesus. And because of that, they are to work out the practical implications of their salvation in their relationships with one another. In their relationships with one another. Paul was not writing to people who lack salvation. He was not telling them that they needed to work in order to obtain salvation. This is, this is not that, that, that meaning. He was writing to people in whom God had begun the good work of salvation, which he talks about in verse 6. Chapter 1, verse 6. The Bible is clear that we can never work for salvation. Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 9 tells us that the salvation we receive is a free gift from God. We don't earn it. It's not merited to us, or we would boast. But secondly, in this part we see God's work here. And this is where it starts to make sense. We see in verse 13, Paul's second part of this general exhortation, where he writes, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. It is God who does this for His good pleasure. So please let me make this clear. Don't, don't misunderstand me. Paul is not teaching that my work plus God's work gives me salvation. Salvation is all of God. It is all of God. Christian author, theologian, J.I. Packer, he expressed it this way. He said, God saves sinners. By this we mean that God, the triune Jehovah, Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons working together in sovereign wisdom, 
power and love to achieve the salvation of a chosen people. The Father electing, the Son fulfilling the Father's will by redeeming, the Spirit executing the purpose of the Father and the Son by renewing everything, first to last, that is involved in bringing man from death in sin to life in glory comes through God. God makes us do what He pleases by making us desire what we might not desire. And because of what God has done, we are now able to live out our salvation for the good pleasure of God. Now please stay with me because this all is going to come together. Okay, I'm not just giving you a theology lesson here this morning. This is very practical. Very practical. And Paul's general exhortation here in verse 12 to 13 teaches us about our responsibility and God's sovereignty. It works hand in hand here. And the reason the Philippians needed to work out their own salvation was that it was God who was at work among them. And now they were responsible to live this gospel that they had believed, which they weren't doing. They were responsible. We're not saved because we choose God. We're saved because God willed to save us. And He begins a good work in us. We see that in verse 6. And we see in the Gospels, in John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, it says, As many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. James 1 verse 8 says, In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among His creatures. And then Jesus says in John 15, 6, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. This was the issue here. The Philippian church was not bearing the fruit that God wanted them to bear. They were chosen for a reason. For God's good pleasure. The salvation from start to finish was God's work. Their responsibility was to live out the salvation in a dark world, in a world that needed the light. But because of what God has done today in us, through the gospel that we have believed, we should be living out our salvation for the good pleasure of God. That is the application here for all of us this morning. For all of us this morning. You see, the gospel transforms us. It has to transform us or we have not received it. If there is no change in us, then there is no gospel that we have embraced. We have a new nature once the gospel is believed. We have a renewed will, and we have a new desire. God gives us all these things because of what He has done in us through the gospel. Which leads to my second point. Paul is laying a foundation here, and he's going to make this very practical here, okay, in the next point. In verse 14 and 16, he talks to us about maintaining a blameless testimony. Maintaining a blameless testimony. So after telling the Philippians to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, Paul makes specific application for the Philippians and for us today 
by telling us to do all things, pay attention here, write this down, without grumbling and disputing. Without grumbling and disputing. Told you, it's going to get practical here, okay? And he is especially exhorting us against grumbling and disputing against one another in the church. In the church. Because he has been urging us to adopt this humble, self-sacrificing servant way of the Lord Jesus. Here's our example, remember. Now Paul says in verse 14, look at verse 14. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted, some versions say perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now it's getting practical. Now the rubber is hitting the road, okay? And Paul here refers to Christians as what? As children of God. But there is a specific Old Testament passage behind Paul's words here. So please turn with me. Keep your fingers in Philippians and turn with me to the Old Testament. Turn to Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. It's important that I show you this verse in the Old Testament because this is what Paul's arguments really is based on here. Deuteronomy 32 verse 5. This is a song from Moses, and he says, They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. And then look at these words. They are a crooked and a twisted generation. Now notice what Paul's done here. Well, let me, let me back up a bit. This is, this is Moses here in Deuteronomy 32. This is a, a song of Moses. And he's, what is he referring to? He's referring to the, the grumbling. He's referring to the, to the unbelief of the, the children of Israel while they are in the wilderness. And Paul here turns this around. He turns this around and he says that we are God's children. We are living in, a, in the middle of this crooked and perverse generation. And we must be careful to do what? To not grumble and dispute as Israel did in the wilderness. Because as God's children, as God's people, we are supposed to shine forth in this dark world as lights, holding forth to people the word of life, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's using the Israelites here as a, as a bad example to help them learn of what they were supposed to do. If you go back to Exodus and you read this account that, Paul, uh, that Moses is talking about, you see how God delivered Israel from Egypt in a in a powerful way. He sent the plagues when he led Israel to the edge of the, of the Red Sea and he brought Pharaoh's army on their, on their heels. And he miraculously parted the, the sea so that Israel could march through on dry ground and then brought the sea back on top of this Egyptian army. And then after this mighty demonstration of God's power and of his care for his chosen people, we read next that they came to a place Three days journey into the wilderness where there was no water. Remember that? And coming right on the heels of their, of their mighty victory 
And just after the song of Moses celebrating that victory in Exodus 15, when you read about this lack of water, you, you think, well, so what? You know, God who just parted the Red Sea surely can provide water for them. But instead, we read in Exodus, in Exodus 15, 24, the people grumbled at Moses. The people grumbled at Moses. And then we read in chapter 16, verse 2, how they grumbled because there was no food. So what did the Lord do? He provided manna for them. And then in chapter 16, verse 8 to verse 13, they grumbled because they, they, they didn't have the food that they wanted. They wanted the, the meat. They wanted all those spices back from Egypt. And then the Lord provides quail for them. And then they ran out of water again. And again in chapter 17, the Lord again provides more water. But in their grumbling and against Moses and disputing with him, they were really grumbling and disputing against the Lord, it tells us in chapter 16. They were discontent. They were complaining. And their complaining and their discontent was a terrible testimony to the nations around them. Remember, the pagan nations that were looking at Israel, God's people, God's children, the God who had provided a mighty deliverance for Israel, who had brought them out of slavery to this promised land, would He not also provide their, their basic needs, food and, and water and clothing? And yet God's children were grumbling. They were complaining. It reflected badly on the character of God. It reflect, reflected badly on His love. It reflected badly on His care and His power to provide for His children. The pagan nations around them who were looking really for a reason to justify their rebellion against the living God, they would, they would laugh at God, they would scoff at God when they heard about the the grumbling and the complaining of his people. And that's Paul's point here in our text. We do live in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation. We do live in a generation that refuses to submit to the lordship of Christ. We do live in a world that is marked by grumbling and complaining. Remember in the original temptation, Satan got Eve to doubt the goodness of God. And ever since, he seeks to do the same. And people won't trust in a God whose goodness is in question. People won't trust in a God whose goodness is in question. So here are God's people delivered from bondage to sin by God's, by God's mighty salvation through the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, they have seen His power, they have tasted the power of the gospel. And what is the Philippian church doing? Grumbling. Grumbling and disputing against the sovereign God who has given them the salvation, who wills and works all things in our lives. For his good pleasure. They are grumbling and complaining. 
And so Paul's exhortation means for us today that we need to see grumbling and complaining for what it is. It is a sin. It is a sin. I know we all struggle with it. I do. I was preaching this to myself this week. Don't worry. Paul says in verse 14, clearly here, just to make it clear, do all things without grumbling and disputing. Why? Why? Well, he continues. Look at verse 15. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in a world holding fast to the word of life. Our testimonies matter, folks. Our testimonies matter. Here's a story I read about Jeff Collins' ministry called Love and Action that I thought was worth sharing. He writes the following. He said, It had been a trying week at our Love and Action office. At 5 o'clock on a Friday, I was looking forward to having a quiet dinner with friends. And then the phone rang. Jeff, it's Jimmy, I heard a quivering voice say. Jimmy, who suffered from several AIDS-related illnesses, was one of our regular clients. I'm really sick, Jeff. I've got a fever. Please help me. I was angry. After a 60-hour work week, I didn't want to hear about Jimmy, but I promised to be right over. Still, during the drive, I complained to God about the inconvenience. The moment I walked in the door, I could smell the vomit. Jimmy was on the sofa, shivering and in distress. I wiped his forehead, then got a, a bucket of soapy water to clean up the mess. I managed to maintain a facade of concern even though I was raging inside. Jimmy's friend, Russ, who also had AIDS, came down the stairs. The smell made Russ sick too. And as I cleaned the vomit from Russ around his chair, I was ready to explode inside. And then Russ startled me. He said, I understand. I understand. And Jimmy replied, what, Russ? What do you understand? And Russ said, I understand who Jesus is through tears down his face. And then Russ said, Jesus is like Jeff. Weeping, I hugged Russ and I prayed with him. And that night, Russ trusted Jesus Christ as his personal Savior, a God who had used me to show his love in spite of myself. I think I'm guilty more often than not of being like Jeff. <laughs> Nevertheless, the gospel conduct does all things without grumbling and disputing. That's what the scriptures are telling us this morning. This is what the gospel calls us to do, that we would be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. My last point is in verse 17, rejoicing in sacrificial service. And Paul wrote in verse 17, 
even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you. Bible scholar Kent Hughes, he makes the following commentary. He says, The sacrificial image that Paul is using here was common practice in both pagan and Jewish sacrifices. A priest would offer a sacrifice and then later pour out a sacrificial drink to complement it. And Paul is saying that if his life is poured out as a, as a drink offering on the altar, if it was upon the sacrifice and service of the Philippians' faith, he is rejoicing in that. And he shares in that joy with them. He's not saying that he will die, but he's saying it's a possibility. And if it does happen, he rejoices. He rejoices with them. And Paul is saying he could joyfully let his life be poured out as a drink offering because his focus was on what? The day of Christ. When he would be rewarded, when he would have to stand and give his life, give an account for his life before the Lord. And he knew that he was not running his life in vain. He did not run or labor in vain. Our lives shine as we put off grumbling and disputing and when we are joyful, even in difficult times, especially during trials, when we trust the sovereignty of God, even though we may not understand why are we going through these difficulties, instead of disputing, instead of grumbling and complaining, we trust the Lord. And the world looks at that. And the world is confused by that. And the world is amazed at that. And they ask us why. And the door opens for us to share the gospel with our friends. Our lives shine as we put off grumbling and disputing and live in joy during trials. Let me bring this together this morning as we conclude. There is a song that we sing here at New Life Church called Overcome. I heard it here in the UAE for the first time, and um, there is a line in that song that at first made me cringe. I wasn't, I wasn't convinced. I wasn't sure. I thought, nah, this isn't right. Let me, let me quote that line to you. The line goes like this. It says, We will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, everyone overcomes. And that's repeated four times. We will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, everyone overcomes. At first, I thought that this meant that, that we are saved by the blood of the Lamb plus our own good works by the work that we could testify about, that the word, work that we could speak about. Now, we've just spoken about that, haven't we? That's, that's syncretism. That's adding to our salvation. We spoke a lot about that this morning. We, we saw clearly that we are not saved by our works. Our salvation is all of God, all of it. But I realized later on that this phrase from the song is not talking about that. It's not talking about that. In fact, this phrase is, is a biblical. It's straight out of the Bible. This phrase is taken from Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. And that verse says, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. 
for they loved not their lives even unto death. Uh, when I read that, I thought maybe Paul wrote that. Maybe Paul wrote that. It sounds very similar to what he just said in Philippians, isn't it? But here in Revelation 12, verse 10, Satan is described as the accuser and the deceiver of believers. And this passage talks about a spiritual battle that had happened in heaven. And verse 10 is the beginning of a, of a triumphant song. And we know Christ wins the battle and Satan is cast out from his access to heaven. And verse 11 tells us that by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of the believer's testimony, Satan was conquered. The blood of the Lamb is emphasizing the death of Christ. We know that this is the, the, substitution, the, sorry, the substitutionary work of Jesus' death on the cross. He paid for our sins. He was the Passover Lamb that was slain as our substitute for our sins. But the word of our testimony that confused me refers to the believer's belief in the gospel. It refers to the believer's belief in the gospel and their confidence in the power of Jesus Christ that enables them to stand secure in the face of Satan and his lies and his accusations. And the connection I'm trying to make here goes back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 15. Paul tells us that we would be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and a twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Jesus gave his blood on the cross so that we could have the forgiveness of our sins. But the devil is not happy just leaving it at that. It is the work of the devil to tempt us to fall into sin so that we will fail God and that we will become alienated for him and that our testimonies would have no effect in the lives of unbelievers, that we would be ineffective in sharing the gospel with people around us. Once we are saved, one of the primary reasons that God has each of his children on this earth is to be a testimony of his grace to the world who is dying in their sins. And the devil wants to stop you from being a testimony. He wants to keep you quiet. He wants to keep you from having a testimony. If you are a Christian, one of the reasons that the devil wants you to sin is to make you a bad testimony. He wants to give the unbelievers a reason to turn away from God because of all their failures. And that is why it is so important that as Christians, as children of God, our testimony should bring glory to God. We should make much of his name through our lives, through our testimonies. And when people look at our lives as Christians, they should praise and exalt our God whom they see shining through us, especially in trials. The gospel must affect our conduct. Satan is an accuser and a deceiver 
We must overcome him with the word of our testimony. Satan is hell-bent on destroying the church. He's hell-bent on destroying your family. He's hell-bent on destroying you and your children. He breathes fiery accusations like a dragon. And he hisses deception like a serpent. He is a destroyer, the Bible refers to him. But the salvation and the power and the kingdom belong to God and to Christ, our King. He has won this battle. He is the victor. He has overcome. Amen? And we shall overcome the devil by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony, by living lives that exalt Jesus Christ. We live in a pagan nation. We live in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation that refuses to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We have governments debating genders, debating the very existence of God and His perfect design. We live in a post-Christian era. Let's not give the unbelievers around us a reason or an excuse to justify their rebellion against the living God. In a book called The Way Back, How Christians Blew Our Credibility and How to Get It Back, authors Phil Cook and Jonathan Bock, they asked the following questions. Why did the early church succeed where we are failing? How did they transform the Western world in such a relatively short time? And then he answers the question. They did it because they did things that baffled the Romans. The early church didn't picket, they didn't boycott, and they didn't gripe about what was going on in their culture. They just did things that astonished the Romans. They took in their abandoned babies. They helped their sick and wounded. They restored dignity to the slaves. They were willing to die for what they believed. After a while, their actions so softened the hearts of the Romans that they wanted to know more about who these Christians were and who was the God they represented. The gospel changes lives, folks. New Life Church, let's make sure we live those lives <laughs> for God's glory. Let our lives be lived without grumbling and complaining and doubting the goodness of God. Remember, people won't trust in a God whose goodness is in question. Let's strive to live lives filled with the joy of Christ because of the salvation that He has given us, even in our trials. Let's pray. Father, forgive us this morning for our grumbling and our complaining. Forgive us this morning, Lord, for questioning your goodness. You are a good, good father. 
you sent your son to reconcile us to yourself while we were yet sinners. Forgive us, Lord, for taking your grace for granted. Help us, Lord, this week, we pray, to live this gospel. May the conduct be evident in the world around us. May we shine as lights in a dark place that we may be able to tell people the good news of the salvation that you have purchased with your blood. Lord, we pray, help us, Lord, to be faithful this week, faithful to you, faithful to your word. Help us to be obedient. Help us to be living lives that please you. Help us to be considering one another. Help us, Lord, not to be grumbling and complaining, but to be living lives that reflect the great God who has saved us from our sins. So, Lord, I pray, please take this message this morning. Take the words from your word and burn them in our hearts, Lord. Lord, that we would respond in a way that brings glory to your son's name. Help us, Lord, we pray. Apply, may the Spirit apply the work, the word to us today. For your glory, Lord, and for our joy, we ask in Jesus' name.